Welcome to the Antioch Community Church Podcast. We are a church located in the downtown Birmingham area where we desire to be with and like Jesus and help others do the same for the glory of God. We hope today's message encourages and challenges you.
What I want to do as we walk through Psalm 23 is, uh, it's kind of structured almost like a, a deck on the back of the house. And so a deck with kind of uh, a set of stairs going down one side and a set of stairs going down the other. And then there's like kind of a door right out the back of the house onto the deck. So that door right out of the back of the house onto the deck is verse 4. And then you've got verses 1, one through 3 that go down. And verses 5 through 6, they go down, and you come up and down on either of those. And so what I want to do is just, I want us to walk out the back of the house onto the deck. And we're going to start in verse 4. And then as we get near the end of our time, we're going to kind of go back to verses 1 through 3 and verses 5 through 6. But verse 4 is really the heart of this song. And so that's why I want us to start there and give it some good attention and allow that to kind of speak into uh, to the rest of the song. So let's, so let's do that. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this. I'll read it for us again. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is, uh, this is carrying on this image and metaphor that's introduced right in verse 1 of, of God being your shepherd, and of you being a sheep, and what you'll see throughout the whole psalm is this is an extremely personal psalm. Uh, unlike many parts of scripture that say ours and we're even talking about your, this is this is me and mine. And so this is my shepherd. And um, we get that image, and that's carried through uh, this whole psalm to this part where you're not in green pastures. But you are approaching and walking through a valley, and specifically the valley of the shadow of death. Now, this is not a literal place. If you were to open up a Bible that has a map on the back, you will not find the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, this is a metaphor for experiences that we all have. And I think it's interesting that it says the shadow of death. So again, this is not the valley of death where death applied to that. The shadow of death. So it's, it's things that cast the shadow of death. And we can experience those kinds of things. You can experience those kinds of things anytime and at all times. The shadow of death. And I want to just even pause there before we even get any further in this and just you know acknowledge that just as Shelby prayed, some of you may be in a valley right now. Some of you might be on the mountaintop. We experience those peaks and valleys, those highs and lows um, in our lives, and you might be in a valley right now. Um, and, or you may be one and not even know it. It just feels dark. It just feels scary in some ways because, you know, to go through a valley is to go through the, the darkest place in, excuse me, in the mountains because of the shadows that are cast. And, um, you, know, you know, you never know what's around the turn. <coughs> and if that is where you are, or when you get to that place, because inevitably uh, you will, just I want you to even just look at those first two words in verse 4. Before even getting to what the kind of punchline is, it says, even though, even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, even though. So, I think we can get so accustomed, this is something that Psalm 23 does such a good job of, of letting you 
begin to hope again. Or letting you find hope. Because, you know, life can, it really can be, it can beat you down. And you can get to a point where you kind of start to lose energy to hope and to keep pushing forward or to keep expecting God to do good and to be good and to be your shepherd. Um, and this is, among many other things in the psalmist, inviting you to be willing to hope again and to let that hope come back in because, you know, that's, that's one of the main things that the enemy wants to do is steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the best ways to do that is to take your hope. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is the amazing claim that even in the, the darkest of days, not just in the good days, but even in the dark days, that David can say, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. So he's not just saying I will fear no bad things or I'll feel no fear no uh, disappointing things, but he's, he's talking about evil, which is, you know, a real animating force in the world, uh, not only in our, you know, personal sin, but also just in the atrocities of the world that, quite frankly, you know, is, again, it's kind of around any corner, and it's around every corner. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, we have to be really careful to pay attention to this, that it, it does not say, I will fear no evil, for you will protect me, which is kind of what we wanted to say. And then kind of, if we're honest, and this is kind of something I was really wrestling with as I was preparing, if I'm honest, isn't that what a good shepherd does? I mean, think about the role of what a shepherd is supposed to do. They are supposed to protect that rod, this rod of guiding them, or, or sorry, the rod of you know, fighting off uh, wolves and predators, but then the, the staff of guiding them. I mean, any good shepherd knows that his first and, and foremost job is to protect the life and the well-being of the sheep. So why would this not say, I'll fear no evil because you're, you will protect me. You're so strong and so good and so watchful and you know me so well that certainly you will protect me. He goes on to say, your rod and your staff, not they protect me from all evil, but they comfort me. So this is like the rest of the Bible, leaving you vulnerable to pain, to suffering, to loss. To things not working out in this life the way that you would hope they would work out. I mean, Jesus himself was murdered. His 11 remaining disciples that followed him, his whole ministry, they were all murdered. And then, you know, not to mention all the prophets and the things that happened to them and then all the things that happen now across the world. I mean, this is... Um, Quite frankly, God is not protecting his people from evil. And I think we have to really face that to be able to then receive the comfort that this is giving. Because if you hold on to the hope and the belief that, well, my comfort in life is that surely God won't let anything that bad happen to me or anyone that I love. And he doesn't promise that. And that's not what is comforting David here. Now, that's natural 
for us to want that kind of security or that kind of protection or that kind of promise. So I want you to really lean into that, even just in this moment, as you know, we're looking at a, you know, for many of us, a very familiar psalm. This is kind of leaving us vulnerable in a way that when we really just let it say what it's saying, is actually in a way kind of frightening. Because what, what David doesn't want for himself and what God doesn't want for you is to have, a, um, to have any kind of a, a weakened sense of security and comfort and hope. He wants it to be deep enough and strong enough to withstand whatever your life may throw at you and whatever your life is throwing at you right now. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. You are with me. He's, David's talking about God's presence with him. And he's, he's somehow saying that it's, it's not the protection, but it's your presence with me. That that is my ultimate comfort. Which again, even as I was you know, studying and reading this, I was like, Lord, but look, you know, just having this almost, this, this kind of mental image of being in the military, being on a battlefield, and you get shot down, and you're laying there, and Jesus is there, and he's just kind of like, sorry, sorry I couldn't protect you from that. How, really, how is that comforting? To know you're still vulnerable to evil, to things going terribly wrong. How is that comforting? I think the reality is, is that myself included, every human being is more attuned with God's absence than his presence. We more naturally, our minds naturally drift towards either, you know, God doesn't exist at all, or if he does, and, he, and I know him, I follow him, he's just not, he's got, he's got other things to worry about than just the things that are going on in my little life right now. Or even just busyness, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's okay to be busy. It's not, not a sin. It's not like you're living in disobedience. Um, but that can oftentimes, you, we can just get so laser focused on what we have to do and, and your tasks and all that and all the pressures that are mounting that you can just live as if God is kind of like a functional atheist in a way. You may profess believe in him, but really when it comes to him being present, like even right now, as we gather together for worship, it can be so easy to not be tuned into his presence. Because part of what sin does from the very beginning is it separates. It, it, it fractures, it cuts, and it tears apart. And that's what you see in the very beginning of the Bible is the very entrance of sin into the world. It has that effect. It not only separates us from one another, Adam and Eve, one another, but it separated them from God. It, it distanced them. And they were living. They were actually avoiding. God was only coming towards them, but they were avoiding. But, you know, I think another thing that can, and I've seen it function in my own life, and I, I came across this 
this guy. He's got literally the most, he's a Christian author, and he has the most amazing name. His name is Steve Cuss. And, his, and he really leads into it. His website is stevecusswords.com. It's amazing. And he, somebody gave me this book called Managing, I don't know if I just seemed anxious or what, but they gave me this book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. I was like, I don't want to read this. And so I was like, I'll start reading it. And I got about the first two chapters and just had to stop because it's so good. Um, and it really does apply to you, even if you're not, quote, unquote, in any sort of leadership role. It's really good stuff. But one of the things that he, one of the observations he makes on early on in the book is that, you know, anxiety, in a way, that's not the root cause. Really, anxiety is more like, it's not the tornado, it's more like the tornado siren. It's more they're telling you something is going wrong. And that thing that is going wrong is, you can put it in different ways, but one way you can put it is, you can put it as, you're being overly self-reliant, overly dependent on yourself. Another way you can put it is you're living like God is absent. You're living like it's all up to you. Now, some anxiety is natural and normal and good. And, you know, if my kid runs out to the street, you know, I should be anxious about that. should fear that, that danger, right? But there is, I think we know that line between right and wrong, helpful and not helpful, anxiety. And anxiety is, you know, something that we all experience, and it's just, I mean, the studies show it's just ramping up more, I mean, just exponentially with whatever you want to point to, whether it's social media or whatever's going on in the culture, but there, there is a significant increase of, especially younger people, experiencing anxiety. Because what Steve Cuss, um, again, great name, what he does, he acknowledges, he kind of names that what anxiety does is it takes your attention away. It, it takes, takes your attention away from the, the fact, fact that God, God is present, that he is good, that he is everything that he said that he is, that he's done everything that he said he's going to do, and it steals that subconscious energy and focus and leaves you in a vacuum where essentially it's just all on you. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because then you feel more anxious and more anxious because then you feel that um, that points, you know, for, for you, you may not really identify with fear. You may be like, well, I'm a fear. It's like, okay, well, I'm afraid of you, okay? And you should be afraid of yourself because it's like human experience. It's, it's natural. But you might, you might uh, identify with fear's cousin, anxiety a little bit more. You know, fear is kind of uh, the, the threat of or the concern about you know, imminent danger. Like it's right there. That bear is really right there, you're not imagining it. But anxiety is, is the concern about um, potential danger, so that the bear might come. And so that's how those two things are different, but they're, they're connected. And so for you, it may be, it may be anxiety that's really more of that thing that, that is kind of a wedge between your presence and God's presence, which can lead you, leave you vulnerable when you do walk through the valley of the shadow. Of death. So what do you what do you do about that? For the fact that on one hand, you know we're, we're kind of used to God's absence, but on the other hand, God's presence, if if we're really honest, seems nice and fluffy and cool, but it's not really going to help protect me. So what do we really do about that? How what is David saying that's that's giving him so much comfort in God's presence? 
I think that it takes a little bit of reframing for us. It takes a little bit of reframing for me, a little reframing for you, to see that maybe the greatest danger you're facing is not something evil happening to you. That maybe the greatest danger facing you isn't you know, your worst nightmare coming true. Maybe, really, the greatest danger that you face is living your life like God is absent when really, actually, he's present. And that that is actually the exact thing that Jesus came to fulfill and make possible. If you look at the Ark of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end, you will see time and time again God saying things like, he wants to dwell with his people, dwell with his people, dwell with his people, dwell with his people. It starts with him coming to Adam and Eve in the garden after they have, you know, rejected him and him making amends and him pursuing relationship again. And then it goes on to manifest itself in a tabernacle, which is the one place on earth that was, it was literally a tent they would, that Israel would set up as they went about the wilderness, and God would come and he would dwell with them there. And he made a way for them to, in all of their unworthiness and in all of their really lack of desire for his presence, he said, look, I'm going to bring my presence to you. And then later, like, it's fulfilled and ramped up even more with a permanent temple, with a whole sacrificial system in place, whereby which God would dwell with his people. And he said to come. He made a way for people to come. That was not man's idea. That was his idea. And then you get to Jesus himself, who on a tree, on a cross, experiences utter rejection, separation, and absence of his father. His father turns his back on him and even cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences that absence from his father willingly so that we could over our lives learn to want God's presence. Jesus initiated giving up his father's presence for a moment on the cross as he bore your sins, he took the wrath that you and I deserved and opened up something that would, he opened up the possibility for that to never have to happen to you or to me. So yeah, maybe our greatest danger, your greatest danger, is living against the grain of how God created you. He created you to walk and to talk with Him. And we step aside from that. And God time and time again comes and says, I will dwell with you, I will dwell with you, I will be your God. He says, I want you to be my people. I want you to want to be my people. And Jesus doing that on the cross for us shows us, look, if he can die so that we can have his presence, I think we can live so that we can have his presence. And I think what, what God wants us to do, because this is this amazing in some ways, force field of protection from fearing evil, simply that you are with me, is to learn to meet God's presence with your presence. It's so easy to, you know, my mom went used to like joke with me as a kid, and it was very true, she would say I had selective listening. 
You know, I could hear what was going on on the TV, but I literally could not hear what she was saying. Like, she's talking, but I'm just not tuned in. I'm not paying attention. And that's what we have to do. And that's, that's a big part of why the Father has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. He's crying that out constantly. It's just a matter of us learning to listen to it. It's just a matter of us drawing our awareness. It's largely about just, are we paying attention to it or not? I mean, you can, you can not know something exists and use it like gravity. And then once you know it exists, it's like, okay, well, now I can like kind of work with that a little bit and understand, you know, I should just jump off of a building because I'm not going to fly because there's this thing called gravity. Working with and understanding, being attentive to God's presence. As we do that, this is where I kind of want to go back to those two, uh, two staircases. Verses 1 through 3 show us what this can feel like. Living with, meeting your presence with God's presence does a few things. Verses 1 through 3, it shows us that it gives you comfort. That's what it does. Yeah, it doesn't give you protection from evil, but it gives you comfort in whatever evil it is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There's comfort, there's restoration, there's provision when you live in his presence. Verse five, there is courage. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I mean, this is an amazing picture. You've got people with, you know, guns and swords and all kinds of weapons around you. And Jesus says, here's some lunch. Because in the end, like, you, you hear echoes of the Bible. What can man really do to me? The worst thing that could possibly happen to you has already happened to Jesus. Not dying, but, but dying. Separation from the Father. And Jesus has ensured that that will not happen to those who trust in his work, who give up their own efforts in trying and trust in him. I think a, a, a great picture of this is uh, Ruby Bridges. Y'all, if any of you know the story of Ruby Bridges, she was six years old during the Civil Rights uh, Movement in Louisiana, and she was the very first black child to be integrated into a segregated school system. And she, was, she and her family were receiving death threats, um, I mean, I mean serious, serious stuff, stuff, so serious that the federal government was concerned for her safety. And so they actually sent federal um, agents to escort her into and out of school for the first few days that she did this because there was people picketing and yelling. And there was real fear for this girl's life as the first one reintegrating back into you know, what had been a completely segregated school. And 
in her classes. All the parents pulled her out of, or pulled their kids out of the classes that she was in because they didn't want their kids in class with her. And so she went to class alone. And out of you know, concern for this little girl, there was a, uh, a psychologist who reached out to her and said, look, I'm gonna offer just free counseling to you. Um, and I'm happy with you just once a week just to see how you're doing and just, this is obviously a lot for a little girl, six years old, to be carrying. And so they began to do that. And at one point, uh, the therapist asked her, you know, I noticed the other day that when you were being escorted into school, you were talking. And he said, were you, who were you talking to and what were you saying? I mean, what were you saying to the federal agents or were you like yelling back at the people or what? And she says, no, that's, I wasn't talking to any of them. I was praying. And so what were you praying for? And she said, I was praying that God would have mercy on them. Because obviously, if they're doing these things and saying these things, they don't know what they're doing. She is literally in the presence of her enemies. And it's simply the presence of God with her that allows her to be comforted and to have courage as a six-year-old girl, a little elementary school girl, to have courage and then to also have confidence. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Goodness and mercy shall follow me. It's not like, you know, they're just kind of back there. But that means they chase you down. Surely, this is, these are the things that despite what value you go through, despite what curveballs life may throw you, ultimately, that's what's chasing you, is goodness and mercy. All the days of my life. And then into eternity, where you end up dwelling with the Father perfectly, where his presence is completely in your presence, and your presence is completely in his. And so as we close, I want to offer just a couple of maybe practical things. Because I recognize that um, this can be a very abstract thing. How do you really do this? I want to offer a couple of things. I want to offer two things. One during the day, and then one at the end of the day. I have to grow, just regardless of whether you're in a valley or in a mountain, being with God, being with the Lord. Being in His presence, meeting your presence with His presence. Um, one is uh, Brother Lawrence, who was, um, was actually a monk in the 1600s. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence. And he has a lot to say about this. So he was really helpful in just kind of practicing knowing how to do this. And one of the things that he said that he would do is he would try to, and this is going to sound a little crazy, and I'm sure he didn't do it all the time, but I think he was just aiming towards a little bit of it. He would consciously, he would try to consciously every 60 seconds just remind himself simply, God is present. Because it's amazing how long you can go living like God is absent, and that he's not good and merciful and present with you. So just even throughout your day, it's often to get bringing your attention to that. God is present with me. And he's for me and not against me because of what Jesus has done, as Romans 8 says. But then also, at the end of the day, this is something that you know, Christians have done for centuries, 
And there's different ways to do it, but it's called the exam. And it's exactly kind of what it sounds like, where you examine your day. I heard somebody get a, a good illustration of this. It's kind of like you know, rummaging through a, a junk drawer for something that you know is there. It's kind of like that. At the end of the day, I do when I'm just laying in bed before I go to sleep. Some people you know, go on a walk or just whatever. But something, and I'll kind of share what I do. It's not the only way to do it. But whatever's helpful for you, some way to rummage through. I know God is in there. He was in my head. Maybe, maybe I wasn't consciously aware of it. Maybe, maybe I was really anxious today. Or you're just super busy. Or just apathetic. I know he was in there somewhere. So I want to rummage through and try, try and find where he is. And so what, what I do is something I learned from, uh, from a pastor a while ago is the, what he calls the three C's. So it's just kind of going back to your day and thinking about um, what were my cares? Where was I anxious? Where was I worried? Where was I stressed? And just making note of those things. What were my cares? And the second is carnalities. So just keeping with the seeds, carnalities. So where, where, where was I tempted to sin? Where did I sin? Where did I see, even maybe in my heart, turning away from Jesus? And oftentimes doing this, you know, on a daily basis, not a condemning thing. But doing this on a daily basis, you kind of begin to maybe pick up on things that, without, again, a kind of conscious awareness that can go years, if not decades, kind of just in the, the, the white noise of your life. Um, cares, carnalities, and then the last one is consolations. Where, where were some moments that, that God just blessed me? It was just, I had a great meal. I just had a really good time with a friend today. Just even anything small, we just noticed. Okay, okay, that, that was, was God caring enough to let me experience something good and enjoyable. Cares, carnalities, consolations. That might not work for you. It may. There, you can just do a quick Google and find just different ways to, again, kind of just rummage through that junk drawer every day to find God, to find who is showing up in your life. And I think as we do that, we train ourselves Especially when we're not in the valley, it becomes a lot easier when we are in the valley to know that it is his presence that is the only thing that comforts and gives us courage and confidence. And one of the things that Jesus has done to give us that remembrance of his presence is something like physical and tangible. Um, he knew that we could really benefit from that because it is so easy to kind of just forget and to live like he's absent and to, to forget what he's done. He doesn't want you to forget that he was broken and that his blood was poured out for you. That he took the punishment and the sacrifice so that he could bring the Father's presence to you. Not, a, not because of punishment, that's what he received, but for comfort and for love and for restoration and to be a child. And so it was his broken body and his shed blood that was required to make that possible. We don't get God's presence without that. The best we can do is have a temple where we can walk up and have a priest offer sacrifice for us. But Jesus was the temple and he allowed himself to be torn open and to allow you, by his spirit, to have his presence at all times. 
And, and so, so if, if you're, you're here and you're not a member of our church, church but you have to place your faith in Jesus, then we welcome you to come to the table and to spend a moment with Jesus. Remembering him is what he called us to do. Remember me. And if you're here and you aren't uh, a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're here, but we would ask that you not partake in this because this is something that we believe Jesus has left specifically for his followers, just to do with one another and with him as well. And so what we'll do is there's two tables, and um, you can come to either one, and if you take the bread, you can dip it in the cup, or we do have the prepackaged one as well, if you prefer that. I believe there are a few uh, gluten-free options in those prepackaged as well. For you, that is uh, something that you need. And yeah, so I would encourage you just, if you want to take a moment, just to spend a moment with Jesus, um, to do that, and whenever you're ready, come to the table. And feast on Christ in your hearts by faith. We are so glad you joined us today. If you would like to stay connected with us, visit our website at antiochbhm.com, where you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like to speak with someone about what was shared today, please email us at info at antiochbhm.com. Go in peace.